We are going to have an unusual uh, Easter service today uh, because not only was the kids' story unusual because there was no Easter eggs, but the Bible reading is going to actually be a bit unusual too. Um, the usual thing on an Easter Sunday is for us to read about, what do you think? The resurrection of Jesus, yep. So where we'd usually get to hear about the, an early morning visit to the tomb, the surprise of seeing the stone rolled away, the grave clothes just laying there. We'd probably get to hear about this big old angel saying, don't look for him here, he's not here anymore, he's risen. Um, we'd probably hear about how Jesus appeared to the disciples behind locked doors and and then how Thomas, who wasn't there, wouldn't said, he, oh, I'm not going to believe until I actually get to see him for myself. That's pretty much a standard Easter Sunday reading, isn't it? Yeah. I want to do something a little bit different today. Today, I want to take us to the very throne room of heaven. Um, Today, I want us to catch a glimpse of the resurrected Jesus. Uh, The Apostle John was in exile on the island of Patmos. Now, that's an island just off the coast of Turkey. And an angel appeared to him. And brought him a vision. And John wrote that vision down. And it is now what we have as the very last book of our Bibles. It's called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, has anyone here ever tried to read the book of the Revelation? Yeah? Did Put your hand up again if you had a little bit of trouble understanding it. Yeah, I'm not surprised with that. Um And if you've ever met someone who claims that they can explain the whole thing to you, um, my advice is don't take everything they say as gospel um, because they're probably speaking of things that they do not understand. They're giving their interpretation of what it may mean because many, many people have written detailed explanations and interpretations of what it means and I have never seen any two accounts the same. Um, unless, of course, one is following the teaching of another. One day, I'm going to take us, that's one book of the Bible that I've never preached through, uh, but one day I'm going to take us through the book of Revelation and teach on it. And I've already decided that there's four phrases that I'm going to use pretty often. One phrase is, I can't tell you for sure what this bit means. Another phrase will be, There's several possible things this could mean, and and I'd share with you those possibilities. Another phrase might be, even though we don't know the exact sequence here, the overall picture is pretty clear, and this is the overall picture that it's saying. And the fourth phrase that I'll use and use quite often is, God is in control. Right? Because that's everything right throughout the book of Revelation. That's what keeps coming through. God is in control. You see, the revelation of Jesus Christ is what's known as apocalyptic literature. It tells a story with images and pictures. And in some cases, the images are very clear what they mean. And then in other cases, they can be a little bit obscure. And sometimes they may have two or more meanings, which mean different things as history unfolds. Okay, so that's the introduction. I'll leave the introduction at that, but I hope I haven't scared you away from the book of Revelation uh, just because it's a little bit difficult. Now, I hope I haven't scared you away because we're told that those who read it, especially those who read it aloud, will be blessed. And um, I'm all for being blessed by God. How about you? Yeah? 
So I can assure you, even though it's a bit hard to read sometimes, if you read it, and even and especially reading it out aloud, um, you will be blessed. So don't be scared away from it. Today, we're going to be reading chapter 5. But first, let me set the scene. In the spirit, John has been invited into the throne room of heaven. Seated on the throne is God in all of his indescribable glory. And around the throne are 24 elders. And these elders are also sitting on thrones. So there's a circle of thrones around the throne of God. Now, some people say these 24 elders represent the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. They could be 24 high-ranking angels. We don't know, right? There's the first one. We don't know exactly who these 24 elders are or what they represent. But what we do know is they occupy a high position in heaven because of their locality of, of the throne and surrounding the throne of God and because they're called elders. And then even closer to the throne of God are four living creatures. I'm not going to spend a lot of time describing these to you because it would take too long, but they may represent the best and the highest order of every type of living creature in creation because one of them looks like a lion and a lion is the, is the most powerful. It's the king of the, of the wild animals. One of them represents an ox and the ox is the king of the domestic animals. One of them has the face of a man and one is, looks like an eagle in flight, right? The, the most powerful of the birds. Everything, and these four living creatures surrounding the throne of God are continually praising God. Everything about this picture is about worship directed toward the Lord God Almighty. Let me just read you a little bit from chapter 4 before we get to chapter 5. Reading from verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So that sets the scene. Everything about it is worshipping God, the Lord God Almighty. And this is where we turn to chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep 
because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Who do you think they're talking about there? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Talking about Jesus. Okay. Jesus has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. All right. This scroll, it has writing on its front and on its reverse. It's full of writing. And we find out later on in the revelation that it reveals God's purposes through history. You know, as we see stuff unfolding, horrifying stuff unfolding today in the world, it's very easy for us to find ourselves feeling, oh, everything's out of control. Um, some people would say, oh, God's just left it and we've run amok. But everything isn't out of control. History is his story. God is in control. So no matter what you see happening in the world, don't forget, God is in control. Now, what are these seven seals? The number seven is a number which will keep coming up through the book of Revelation. And it represents perfection or completeness. Um, And a seal marks ownership or authority or the commitment of a contract. And so the seven seals on the scroll represent God's mark, God's authority, God's ownership of history. And because it's the number seven, it's seven seals, it's complete ownership. It's It's complete authority. God is in control. He's in complete control of history. And there it is. It's all rolled up in this scroll. And John is just itching to see it. You you want to know what's going to happen, don't you? Like everybody has always wanted to know. That's why the fortune tellers and whatever always, they still make money today because people are wanting to know what's going to happen. What's going to happen? And John began to weep because he didn't think he was going to get a look at it. No no one was worthy to, to break the seals and to open the scroll. Nobody was worthy, worthy to e- either know or to set in motion the purposes of God through history. But Jesus is worthy. The resurrected Jesus is worthy. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now it's starting to sound weird, isn't it? The lion of Judah is a lamb. Jesus is pictured as a lamb and it's not a lamb like what we might picture a lamb of this cute little cuddly thing if you've ever seen any illustrations of in bibles of pictures to go with things in the bible at about this stage they'd have a picture of this cute little cuddly thing which probably you know it's only just old enough to get get marked um but the greek word anion 
is a ram lamb of at least a year old. All right. So if you understand your sheep, it's a two tooth ram or a ram hogget, depending on your definitions. Nothing cute and cuddly about it. Um, the pictures there, like we've obviously got a merino ram, which we're familiar with, but I tried to find a sort of a more Middle Eastern looking sheep there. And um, there's one there up in the corner. But there's nothing cute and cuddly about them. Um, you know, the Passover lamb, we, we've heard about the Passover lamb. A Passover lamb had to be a ram lamb of between one and two years old. The Passover lamb was no little cute, cuddly thing either. Um, I'm not sure how they would have expected to feed a few families on, <laughs> on one lamb if it was a cute little cuddly thing. And yet this ram looks as if it's been slain, and yet it's alive. Now, there's no mistaking the imagery here. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus was killed at Passover. Did you know that? That's why the dates of Easter change every year because they've got to make it line up with the Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb, a man in his prime slain as a sacrifice for our sins. And yet today, this Easter Sunday, we're celebrating that he lives, aren't we? He was slain, the lamb that was slain, and yet he lives. How else is Jesus described? And we have to remember, we're talking imagery here. All right. Jesus does not actually look like a ram that's had its throat cut. Okay. We're talking imagery here. It's imagery used to reveal the truth about who the resurrected Jesus is. This ram has seven eyes. There's that number seven again, isn't it? Number seven, which means complete or perfect. So seven eyes most probably means that he has perfect knowledge. He sees everything. It's The word that we use is omnipotent. It's a big word. Can you kids say the word omnipotent? Six times really quickly. Omnipotent, 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 omnipotent. <laughs> Can any adults say it? It means that you see everything and you know everything. It's sort of a bit like mum, only better. Uh, when Jesus came to planet Earth, he was not omnipotent. He was not omniscient. Omniscient means you know everything. He lowered himself to become one of us. And for Jesus to be fully human means that while he is here on earth, he couldn't see everything. He couldn't know everything. He couldn't be everywhere at once. He couldn't see everything at once. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been truly, fully human. But now that Jesus is glorified, the resurrected Jesus Christ who has ascended into heaven is once again all-seeing and all-knowing. He doesn't only have seven eyes, he's got seven horns. Now, this is where it starts to look a bit weird. You might, some, you know, you might have been surprised to try and picture a little lamb with, with horns, but you're not going to be so surprised that you can picture a two-tooth ram or a, you know, a ram hogget 
a ram a year between one and two years old, you can picture that with horns all right, can't you? Um, but what does make it weird is he's got seven horns. Now, do you know, actually, when I was looking for pictures of some Middle Eastern sheep, there's actually some breeds of Middle Eastern sheep that have four horns. They look really weird. So like one sort of horn sort of comes up straight up and another one sort of comes around. So that sort of gets a little bit closer to seven. But there's that number seven again, seven horns. Now we know the number seven means complete or perfect. Now if I was to tell you that in the Bible horns represent power, you now know what it means. The resurrected Jesus has complete power, complete authority. Jesus Christ is all seeing, he's all knowing and he's all powerful. He sees everything. He knows everything. He possesses all strength, all power, all might, all glory. Are you seeing now how this imagery in Revelation reveals to us what Jesus is like today? Verse 7. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Right? Everything in heaven, apart from God the Father, don't only worship God the Father, they also worship Jesus, the Son of God. And have you ever wondered, is it right for you to pray to Jesus? Well, there's your answer. The golden bowl full of incense represents, and we're told this, they represent the prayers of the saints, that is Christians, disciples of Jesus, and they are offered to Jesus. So there's your answer. Yes, it is right to pray to God the Father and it is right to pray to Jesus Christ, his son. Verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy because of who he is. He is God after all. But because of who Jesus is, Jesus has done what Jesus has done. He was killed as a sacrifice. He was our Passover lamb. By his blood, he ransomed people for God. By his blood, he bought us back for God. And not just Israel, but people from every tribe, every nation, every language group. We were unworthy. We were slaves to sin. We were cut off from relationship with God. But by his blood, he paid that ransom and he set us free. Now, Jesus said a number of times, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And that's the picture that's being painted for us here. We're not worthy. We're sinners. 
We're not worthy. We're not even born into the, into the tribe of Israel. But he has made us a kingdom and priests to God. I don't know if, if you realise how, how big a thing that is. Um, I'm just at the moment in my daily Bible readings, I'm reading Leviticus. Um, has anyone ever read Leviticus? It's tough going. Um, it's, it's back in the Old Testament, but a lot of it is talking about how to get worthy to be, to, to work as priests in, in, in the tabernacle. And the rigmarole that the priests had to go through to be worthy to serve God, all the religious rules and regulations they had to keep and all of the ceremonies that they had to perform just to get worthy and then to stay worthy to serve in the temple. For a start, you had to be born to it. You had to be born into the line of Levi. So they'd cut most of us out. Has anyone here got a heritage that makes you a Levitical priest? No. That cuts us out. Sorry. (laughs) But the blood of Jesus just cuts through all of that. And we who are not worthy, we who are not born to it, uh, we who are are not able to go through all of this big marigrole to to make ourselves worthy, we become a kingdom and priest to our God. Now, I want you to understand this. I'm not your priest. I'm not your priest. I'm not the intermediary between you and God. The Pope's not the intermediary between you and God. Canonized saints are not the intermediary between you and God. I'm not any closer to God than you are. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, in biblical terms, you are a saint. And so am I. And that means we're priests together. So if anyone asks you, are you called to the priesthood? Your answer is, yep, sure am. Because we're all priests. And because Jesus was slain to save us, he is worthy. He's worthy to break the seals on the scroll and he is worthy to set in motion God's plan for this world, what has become and what will become the earth's history. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Can you see what's happening here? It started with, worthy is the one who is seated on the throne, right? God the Father. To be worshipped and receive power and glory and might and honour. And now what's it saying? Worthy is he who is seated on the throne and worthy is the lamb to receive 
this power and might and honour and glory. The risen, crucified one is to be worshipped. Have you ever wondered, is it right to worship Jesus or, or should I only be worshipping God? Absolutely, it's right to be worshipping Jesus. Yes, Jesus was always God. It was God who lowered himself to become a human. It was God the Son who submitted to God the Father to be sacrificed on the cross. And in the Gospel of John, he says that Jesus came into the world that he had made. Right? He had created this world, but the world didn't recognize him. And of course, the outcome of that was we crucified him. But Jesus is not unrecognizable any longer. He is not the one to be ignored. He is the one to be worshipped. And if we were to read the rest of Revelation, this is what we would discover. The fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is very, very good news for the saints. And the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is very, very bad news for those who reject him. Now, I've used the word saints a number of times today. Are there any saints here? Put your hands up if you're a saint. Okay, let me describe it a little bit more. A saint is someone who gives their heart to Jesus. I want you to get away from what church history, religious definitions of saints are. A saint, we, we tend to think of saints as being those who are, they're, they're the extra good Christians. They're the ones who are extra close to God. They're the ones who are extra empowered. They might be able to do miracles. They might be extra nice people. But biblically, a saint is someone who realises they're not worthy. Put your hand up if you realise you're not worthy. That's a few more of us, hey. Someone who realises that not they're not worthy, but who also realises that it is right for them to be worshipping the one who is worthy to be worshipped. The literal meaning of saint is a holy one. That's what it means. The Greek word is hagios. A holy one. And so to become a saint, we confess our sins to him. We, we become aware of our inherent unworthiness and we confess our sins to him and he forgives us and he takes us and makes us righteous. He makes us holy. He makes us into saints. So let me ask that original question today. Are there anyone here today who's a saint? I'm hoping that you might all be saints. And if you're not a saint, I'm hoping that you're sitting here thinking, well, I don't think I am a saint, but I really, I really want to be a saint. I really, really want to be worthy. I want to give my heart to God. The risen Jesus brings us into his kingdom and we're instantly priests. Our worship is joined together with the worship of the elders and the living creatures as we worship the ram who was slain to save us.
Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And Lord God, we worship you. We worship you in all of your wholeness and all of your fullness. And today, Lord, we worship you as, as the Son. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has risen from the dead. Lord, we worship you. Lord Jesus Christ, you are worthy to receive glory and honour and praise. And Lord, we know that we cannot muster enough enough words to, to, to sing of these praises to you. So Lord, we thank you that you join our worship together with the worship of the throne room of heaven. I mean, that, that very image of the prayers of the saints being poured out to you. Lord, receive our prayers in the attitude of worship. Lord, we want to thank you that by your blood that you have ransomed us, that that you make us holy. And Lord, we pray for more holiness. Lord, we confess to you our sin. Lord, forgive us. Lord, we confess that your word here is telling us that you are worthy of praise and yet so often we neglect to bring that praise. You're worthy of our full worship and so often we don't bring you that worship. God, forgive us. Lord, you make us a kingdom and priests. Lord, bring us into your kingdom. Lord, make us worthy to serve you. Lord, I want to thank you that we don't need an intermediary because our Lord Jesus Christ is that intermediary. Lord, we thank you that we can come before you and humble ourselves before you and worship you. Praise God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain and yet lives. Amen.